please grab some of these cards to remind you to pray for our Uganda team. If you had your life to do all over again, and you could do just one thing differently, what would it be? There's no question that I can all but guarantee you that it wouldn't be something that you did good that you wished you had done better. I can guarantee you that that one thing that you wished you could do differently would have been something that you did bad that you wished you hadn't done at all. There's no question that if King David could have done his life all over again, there's one thing that he would have done differently. And we find it in our text this morning. So I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word in whatever form that you have it and open with me to the book of 2 Samuel as we are continuing our series called Looking for a King. 2 Samuel, uh, the verses that were given to me to, for this message were 10, 11, and 12, but we're mainly going to zero in on the middle one, chapter 11. And so if there's a chapter you want to turn to, it'll be 2 Samuel 11. But you can also turn to a New Testament book, the book of James as well. Because I want to begin in just a moment by reading a few verses out of it. You see, one mistake that comes to a lot of believers, that a lot of believers make when it comes to um, temptation, is that temptation in and of itself is sin. Now you need to know that temptation is common to all of us. Every one of us who are in here experience temptation. I battle temptation. You battle temptation. All of us battle temptation. Even Jesus experienced temptation. The Bible says in Hebrews that He, talking about Jesus, was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Temptation itself isn't a sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. If that were the case, then Jesus sinned. So temptation is not the issue. It's what happens with that temptation. It's what we do with that temptation. And James, in his book, outlines the process after temptation that leads to sin. And I think it's important that we look at these verses. Here's what he says in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now the reason I read that to you is, of course, so you can know the process after temptation that leads to sin, but it's also because David is going to follow those, that exact process in the story that we're going to look at this morning. He's going to see something that's going to connect to the desire within him. He's going to experience temptation. He's going to then conceive in his mind what he could do in response to that desire, in response to that temptation, and then sin is going to be born in his life. But it's not going to stop there. That sin that is born is going to grow to the point in his life that it actually becomes fully grown and brings forth death. And what you're going to see is it not only brings spiritual death, but it brings physical death. 
So far in this story, we've seen David's rise. I mean, think about David for a moment. He was a shepherd boy that God took from the pasture and elevated to the palace. He was the only one of the Israelites who went out to face the giant Goliath. He lived such a life of trust in God that he refused to take revenge on Saul when we would have said that he would have had every right to do so. He was so powerful, church, that even men who were around him were considered mighty. And he's the only person in the Bible who's described as, quote, a man after God's own heart. Yet David's about to do something here in this text. So bad, so deceptive, and so twisted that it's actually hard for us to believe. We've not only seen David's rise, what we're going to see this morning is David's fall. And you may say, Derek, why are, why are we even looking at this part in David's life? Well, not only because it's next in line as we're walking through the text, but we want to learn from it so that we won't repeat it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In between the words stands and fall are the words take heed. In other words, if we don't take heed, then we will fall just like David did. And so I want us to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want us to see David's sin so that we might avoid the trap that David fell into. We need to be grateful that David's story of sin is, is in the Bible. Because it reminds us that none of us who are in this room are above ruining our lives. And even when we do, God's grace is greater than our sin. It also teaches us how to avoid ruining our lives. It provides for us insight on how exactly we can ruin our lives so that we can avoid ruining our lives. It gives us a peek into the heart of this man named David into what was happening internally that led to such a great fall externally. Now, when you think about David, I'm sure there are two names that quickly come to your mind. Goliath and Bathsheba. You either remember the time that David slew Goliath or you remember the time that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Both events are monumental moments in the life of David. Goliath reminds us of David's greatest victory, and Bathsheba reminds us of David's greatest defeat. The first one proved that David was a man of faith. The second one proved that David was a man of flesh. We've already looked at David's encounter with the first one. We've already seen him deal with a giant on the outside. This morning we're going to look at David's encounter with a giant on the inside. We've already looked at the giant that David slew. This morning, I want to look at the giant that slew David. And in doing so, we have to be aware of the internal giants that we face. You see, it's not so much the external giants that are going to give you the most trouble in life. It's those internal giants that dwell in your heart right now that are going to give you the most trouble 
in your life. And what's amazing is you would never expect this story to be in the Bible. At least not about David. Because when you read the first ten chapters of 2 Samuel, David's batting a thousand. He's at an all-time high. He's at the top of his game. I mean, things are going really good for David. He's got money. He has power. He has authority. He has fame. His life looks like a plane after it takes off, just kind of going up and up and up. He's at the highest point in his life, in the highest position in the kingdom, at the highest place in the city. So chapter 10 ends with David at the top of his game, with Israel thriving and with God handing another enemy over to him. But when we turn the page in our Bible and we move from chapter 10 into a chapter 11 and we turn the page in David's life, we see how the mighty fall. And what causes David's fall can be boiled down to one simple fact. He said yes when he should have said no. He had convinced himself of a lie that we've all convinced ourselves of at one time or another. And here is that lie. You can win the game of sin. David couldn't, and neither can you. No one ever has, and might I say, no one ever will. We're going to learn from this story in David's life what not to do when you are tempted, and what not to do if you do give in to temptation. And maybe for a lot of us, this text this morning, this message will be good preventative medicine to keep you from getting off the wrong exit. And for others of you who have already taken the wrong exit, it will help you get back on the right road. And so this morning, I want to talk about the slippery slope of sin. If you like to take notes, now's your chance. The first point of the message this morning is this. I need to realize, and I kind of made it personal here, because none of us are above this. I need to realize the appeal of sin. Look in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. When the writer highlights that spring is the time when kings go out to battle, he's trying to tell us something. You see, spring was when the armies would go out to battle and the armies were always led by the commander-in-chief. But here we're told, maybe for the first time in his life, that David is not leading his men out in battle himself. David should be out at war. In fact, God had told him to be in the battle. David should have been out fighting with his men, but David remained in Jerusalem. He didn't go. Instead of being in battle, David is in bed. And everything in this verse, just verse 1 here of this text, points to one fact. David's not where he ought to be, and David's not doing what he ought to be doing. He should have been out leading his men in battle and not staying at home, sleeping in his bed. In other words, David was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Now David isn't 
really doing something wrong at this point. He's just failing to do something right. He's back in Jerusalem. And while that isn't necessarily a sin, we're going to learn that his decision to stay back and not be where he's supposed to be unlocks the door through which sin enters. Now folks, we need to consider this. Not being where we ought to be and not doing what we ought to be doing can set us up for failure. How many sins are committed because we're not where we ought to be? How many sins are committed because we're not doing what we ought to be doing? If David was where David should have been, and if David was doing what David should have been doing, this situation with Bathsheba never would have taken place. So this is the setup for what's about to happen to David. He's not where he ought to be. And as we look at what happened to David and how he faced his giant within him, and if I were to give David's giant a name, it would be lust, we can learn something of the power of that this giant exercised in his life. And watching his battle can help us when our battles arise. First, there's three things I want to share about this. His giant ensnared his mind. Look in verse 2. And I like how the writer introduces this. It happened. What happened? Just wait. It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So after taking a long afternoon nap, which probably not only describes David's physical condition, but probably his spiritual condition, napping, David decides to take a walk on the roof of his palace. Now, this wasn't anything unusual. Kings frequently built their bedrooms on the second story or the upper level of a palace, and they could walk right out onto what was we would call today a patio that was lavishly furnished, that had an awning for shade, and so David walks out onto this patio. And from there, because it was so high built up, the king's palace was, on a hill, David could see the entire city. And as he does, he sees a woman bathing. Now there's something interesting that the writer directs our attention to here. We're specifically told that this woman is beautiful. Now, the Hebrew word for beautiful gives us the idea that this woman was smoking hot. Now, the Bible usually doesn't rate people. And the Bible actually, do you see the word right before beautiful? The word very? It uses the word very sparingly. And it never uses that word to exaggerate something. It always uses that word to emphasize something. And so the fact that Bathsheba was beautiful, but not just beautiful, very beautiful, means that she was smack yo mama hot. This woman was a vision of female beauty, physical perfection. She was a 10. 
And when David saw her, that giant of lust that dwelt within his heart roared to life. David sees this beautiful woman bathing and he stays there. And as he does, this feeling begins to overpower him. Why? Because she is attractive. And David is drawn to her. Now, don't give me an answer. But at this point, what should David do? Run. Right? Run. Turn around. Get back in your house. Draw the blinds. Whatever it takes. Get away. Run from it. Listen, there are times when the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But when it comes to sexual temptation, the Bible clearly says, you flee. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You run. We are never told to flee from gluttony. We are never told to flee from gossip or to flee from lying or any other category of sin. We're never told to run. But over and over and over again, the Bible says we are told to run to flee sexual immorality. David should go back in his house and not continue looking at what he sees. Because understand, he doesn't have to entertain this. I hope you're catching this. It's something that a lot of people struggle with. He doesn't have to entertain this. He has the opportunity to move away from this temptation. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does. Instead, he wants to find out who this very beautiful woman is. He wants to know who she is. He wants to know everything about her. No doubt his mind is filled with fantasies of what it would be like to be with her physically. This giant of lust that is within his heart has ensnared his mind. And David has forgotten who he is. He's forgotten who he serves. He's forgotten how he's supposed to be living. His giant has taken control of his mind. And that's how sin works. That's how sin has always worked and that's how sin will always work. This is the first step that we take when we're about to be overcome by our giant. A thought develops into a desire within our mind and that desire will demand to be fulfilled. You need to know, the Bible talks about this over and over again, specifically in 2 Corinthians 10 and Philippians 4. The mind is the battlefield with the giant of sin. If it falls, the rest of the defenses will tumble like dominoes. The mind must be guarded. Second, not only did it ensnare his mind, it erased his reason. Look in verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, don't miss how she's described. Who's Eliam? One of David's mighty men. A trusted friend. A trusted associate. Which means she's the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's trusted counselor. His trusted advisor. He was on his staff. And here the servant is trying to give David a warning. 
You see, normally the identity of a person wasn't given with any relation to their spouse. If you were to, back in biblical days, if you were to ask who someone was, they'd refer to as the son of someone or the daughter of someone. This servant makes a point. He's saying that this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In other words, the servant is trying to stop David. He realizes that this issue with David began about 20 years ago when he disobeyed God's command for marriage. That one wife wasn't enough. That David began to accumulate wives and began to accumulate concubines. He had this insatiable desire for women. And he's trying to tell David, look, you better back off. She's married. You're married. Stop thinking about what you're thinking about. Stop entertaining in your mind what you're desiring. She belongs to someone else. This is another opportunity. You talk about the mercy of God. This is another opportunity for David to stop what he's doing. God's putting a roadblock in David's life to try to keep him from sinning in the form of this servant. And he does the same thing for us. Look, whenever you're about to walk off the cliff of temptation into the valley of sin, God will always sound the alarm. He will always bring up a red light. God always gives you a warning. And listen to me, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, God always provides a way of escape. You don't have to sin. We choose to sin. This information should have stopped David from pursuing what he was pursuing, wanted to pursue. But instead he presses on. He moves right past this warning. And such is the power of our giants. Look, if they ensnare your mind, then they will erase all reason. People in the grip of lust or in whatever fleshly desire you're dealing with often do things that they would never do under normal circumstances. And when you get in the grip of lust or you get in the grip of whatever your giant is, you will lose all your senses and you will become intoxicated with nothing but simply gratifying your fleshly desire. Third, not only did it ensnare his mind and he erase his reason, it eclipsed his God. David doesn't listen to the warning. He takes a fatal step that leads him over that cliff into the valley of sin. Look in verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. And in parenthetical, that's the word, a parenthetical statement is given to us here to let us know that this baby that you're going to read about was not her husband's. Now she had already been, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. We're right at that part of the story where you want to push pause and you want to scream at the top of your lungs, David, don't do this. Take a cold shower. Go watch ESPN. Just don't do what you're about to do. And I think the wording in verse 4 is important. David sent and David took. This is the essence of sin. You just take what you want. Now church, David should have known better. He's 50 years old at this time. He's been king for 20 years. He's a man of God. 
He's a mighty warrior, but at this moment in time, David reminds all of us that he has feet of clay. He brings Bathsheba into his bed and he commits adultery with another man's wife. He dishonors her. He dishonors her husband. He dishonors his wives. And most of all, he dishonors God. David had forgotten his relationship with God. The giant of lust that had ensnared his mind and had erased his reason had now blinded him from his God. The giant of lust is standing so tall in his heart and in his mind that it has blocked the face of God from view. Such is the power of sin. David forgot God, and if you give in to your giants, you will forget God too. When that giant bypasses or gets past your mind and he rises up in your heart, he will block your view of God. And when that happens, you will find yourself doing things that you never thought were possible. That's why it's so vitally important that the giants be defeated when they first appear in our minds. If we can stop them there, they cannot control our life like they desire to do. So instead of running to God and away from his sin, David runs to sin and away from God and the results are catastrophic. Look at number two. Not only do I need to realize the appeal of sin, I need to refuse to conceal my sin. David goes to bed that night thinking a lot of water... Uh, thinking the thoughts that sometimes a lot of people have, and that is, I got away with it. No harm, no foul. Nobody will know. And man, it was fun. That went on for about a week, maybe two weeks, and then David learns that a one-night stand can turn into a lifetime of misery. One day, there's a knock at the palace door, and it's a message from Bathsheba that she has sent to David. Look in verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. These are the only recorded words of Bathsheba in the entire story. But it's three more words than David wanted to hear. Three words that shook him to his core. Now once again, if we just stop right here, if David at this moment had just confessed his sin, confessed it to God, confessed it to Bathsheba, confessed it to her husband, the bleeding would have stopped. The problem would have been contained to adultery and a pregnancy out of wedlock. Most likely the marriage could have been rebuilt, lives could have been saved, and the relationships could have been restored. But instead, David does what so many of us do. Instead of fessing up, he begins covering up. And notice what David's giant did. Number one, it led him down a deceptive path. Rather than read the rest of the story, let me kind of summarize it for you. After learning that Bathsheba is pregnant, David comes up with a, uh, a way to cover up his tracks. He thinks he could solve his problem just like he solved every other problem. He thinks it's simple. So he comes up with plan A. Plan A involves calling Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband, calling Uriah back from the battle and then trying to get him to go home and sleep with his wife Bathsheba. That way everybody will think that it was Uriah and not David who got Bathsheba pregnant. But Uriah doesn't go home. 
Uriah thinks of his fellow soldiers that are sleeping, not in their beds with their wives, but who are sleeping out on the battlefield. And instead of going home and sleeping with his wife, Uriah sleeps on the steps of the palace. Everybody knows that Uriah hasn't gone home to his wife. What is David doing? He's using deception to try to cover up his sin. Likewise, when you and I find ourselves under the grip and control of sin, we will try every method to try to keep our sin covered and to keep our sin hidden. Sin will lead you down a path of deception. Not only did it lead David down a deceptive path, second, it led him down a deepening path. When David discovers that plan A doesn't work, he doesn't give up. He brings in plan B. Plan B is to bring Uriah over for a second night and this time to get him drunk so he will for sure go home. But Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps again on the steps of the palace. Look, Uriah has more integrity than David at this point. Uriah proves to be a better man drunk than David does sober. Sin is leading David deeper and deeper into its prison and farther and farther away from his God. And this is how sin works. It's never satisfied to just lead you along. It wants to take you deeper and deeper, tightening its grip on your heart and your life. And don't let that giant that rules in your heart or that dwells in your heart deceive you. Your giant will settle for nothing short of your total destruction. Finally, not only did it lead him down a deceptive path and a deepening path, it led him down a devastating path. Now David, a man after God's own heart, gets as far away from the heart of God as you can possibly get. David's next move shows us just how calloused and cold his heart has grown. He sinks even deeper in sin and David now does the unthinkable. He comes up with plan C. Plan C is to remove Uriah altogether. So David sends Uriah back to the front lines with a letter to Joab. Joab was the commander of the army. And that letter tells Joab to put Uriah on the front line of the battle where the fighting would be the fiercest. And then once Uriah is on the front line, pull back from him so that he will be killed in battle. David writes the letter. He seals it. He hands it to Uriah to carry to Joab. In other words, Uriah carries his own death sentence to the battlefield. This is David, a man after God's own heart. Let me tell you something. Unconfessed sin changes you. That's what sin does. It sears your conscience, making it easier and easier until your entire life is devastated and destroyed. Sin will dull your sensitivity to the Lord and to His voice. Sin will wreck your life and it will ruin your life if you allow it to take hold of your life. Be careful because the devil never shows you his cards. He never tells you about the worm that's hidden in the apple. He never tells the drunk that drinking will destroy their life and ruin their family. He never tells the fornicator or the adulterer that their sexual activities may lead them to pregnancy, disease, or even death. He never tells the drug user that their habits will control them forever. He never tells the truth about sin. Don't let that giant that dwells in your heart destroy and devastate your life. Look, sin will take me farther than I want to go. Sin will keep me longer than I want to stay. And sin will cost me more than I want to pay. 
Everybody sins. The question is not, do you sin? The question is, what do you do after you sin? Because what you do makes the difference. And always remember this, whenever you give in to, sin, give in to temptation and you take the wrong road, you're immediately faced with two choices. I can either confess what I did, or I can conceal what I did. But remember this, one button leads you to dig out of a hole, while the other button just puts you deeper into the hole. Covering my sin will always cost me more than confessing my sin. Which leads me to the final point. I need to remember God will reveal my sin. Joab carries out David's orders. Uriah is killed. And when news reaches David that Uriah is dead, cold-hearted David simply says this in verse 25, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. Can I put it in my translation? David says, Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. That's just the way it is. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. I mean, that's the risk you take when you join the army. And after Bathsheba mourns, David brings her to his palace and he marries her and thinks that they're going to live happily ever after. She bears a son. Everybody assumes that she got pregnant on her honeymoon. And David brushes the whole thing under the rug. David thinks he's covered his sin. He's convinced himself that he's gotten away with it. But there's one statement at the end of this chapter that tells us why not only David did not get away with it, but he could not get away with it because nobody ever does get away with it. The very last sentence of chapter 11 says this, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God saw all of it. God watched as David's heart grew cold and David stopped pursuing him and instead he pursued a married woman. God saw it all. And look, God sees all of my junk and He sees all of your junk too. Don't ever say that nobody will ever know and nobody will ever find out because God always knows. Things would work out fine if God didn't see it. But God always sees it and God always knows it. God not only knows everything that we do wrong, but He doesn't forget it until we make it right. I've heard a lot on the news lately about statute of limitations. There's no statute of limitations when it comes to God. What I cover, God will uncover. But what I uncover, God will cover. What I conceal, God will reveal. But what I reveal... God will repeal. You see, at any moment, David could have sought forgiveness and David could have found forgiveness. God's always willing to forgive when we confess our sin and we repent of our sin. As you're going to find out, David went 12 months, an entire year, and refused to seek forgiveness. For a better part of a year, David lived a life of hypocrisy and deception. But during that time, David's sin did not go unnoticed. Maybe nobody else noticed, but God did. 
and he designed a strategy to bring David to his knees. David racked up on the credit card of sin, but that bill is going to come due. And as you turn the page from chapter 11 into chapter 12, 2 Samuel 12 is one year after David's affair with Bathsheba. And we know that because the child from their affair has just been born. And back in those days, it took nine months between when a couple had sex and the birth of a baby. I learned that in seminary, by the way. But God sent a prophet, a trusted friend of David's by the name of Nathan to confront him about his sin. The question is, how will David respond? 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. I'm just going to read a few verses out of 12 and then we'll be done. Look at 12, 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice David didn't give any excuses. He placed the blame squarely on himself. He says, I have sinned. He doesn't say, well, in my defense, other kings do it all the time. He didn't say, well, you know, I'm only human. He didn't say, well, we were at war. I was under a lot of stress. I wasn't thinking right. What did David say? David said, I have sinned. He called sin what it is, sin. He didn't call it something else. He didn't call it an addiction. He didn't call it a weakness. David calls it exactly what it is. He says, I have sinned. And let me tell you now where you come in. And I'm drawing to a close. This story is for anyone who's blown it. It's for those who have fallen into sin. And maybe you wonder if there's any hope. If you can still be forgiven by God, if you can ever be used by God again. It's for those who know what it's like to battle daily against sin. Look in 2 Samuel 12 verse 20. Then, what's the then? After David confessed his sin, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Notice what David did. First, he got up. Second, he changed his clothes. In the Bible, a change of clothes meant a new beginning. You see, maybe some of you are here this morning or watching online and you're saying, Derek, I've been out of fellowship with God for a long time because of my sin. I'm here to tell you that God can give you new clothes. I'm here to tell you today that you could, this can be a new beginning for you just like it was a new beginning for David. That no, that no matter how far you feel away from God, that there is no sin where God's grace is not deeper still. That you can once again fellowship with this holy and loving God if you will just confess your sin to this God and repent of your sin before Him. Then it says, David went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. For the first time, we see David once again enjoying the joy of his salvation. Once again, we see him in the presence of his God. Look in verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into, went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. Church, this is amazing. God not only forgave, but God took the curse off this relationship.
He took the curse off of this marriage and he once again blessed David's marriage. Notice the words, David comforted his wife Bathsheba. It's no longer Uriah's wife. It's now David's wife. You see, when God forgives, He totally forgives. Because some of us want to read this story and we want to say, no, you can't bless David that way anymore. God says, I'll do what I want to do. If I've forgiven him, then I've forgiven him. And to show us that, what does God do? He gives him a son, Solomon. When you're dealing with the fallout of an implosion in your life like David had, when you feel like you've completely ruined your life, when you're embarrassed by your sin, God is eager to forgive you. Because no matter how great your sin is, God's grace is greater. No matter how much you feel like you've ruined your life, you have not and you cannot out-sin God's grace. When you get to the end of chapter 12, David is once again where he needs to be. He's in battle. At the beginning of chapter 11, David's not where he should have been, not doing what he should have been doing. But at the end of chapter 12, David's where he ought to be. And he's doing what he ought to be doing. That's what repentance does. This morning, I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God. I'm going to ask you to, as we stand and pray and go into this last song, I'm going to ask you to search your heart. What giant is trying to overtake you in your life? Would you stand with me as we pray? Our Father, as we reflect on this story, we see how far we can fall. How deep in sin that we can get. And there may be somebody here this morning, God, who, just like David, finds themselves in a situation that never should have happened. Maybe there's somebody here this morning, God, who has some undealt with sin in their life. And God, there might even be somebody here this morning who's just simply going through the motions, trying to cover their guilt with religious activity, trying to clear their conscience with an act of worship. Father, help them to realize there is forgiveness with you. That you are ready to freely forgive. You are ready to freely hand out grace. Father, open our eyes to the truth of what we've done and help us to respond accordingly. As your word says in Proverbs chapter 28, he who conceals his sins does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces his sins finds mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.